You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right. I'm glad you guys are here. Um, Pretty sure everyone knows me. Maybe not. I think so. I'm Dave. I'm the teaching pastor here at Revolution Church. Uh, If you go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Yes, we're going to need like hard copy Bibles from now on because for the sake of the guys working in the sound booth so they don't have to try to follow like watch words like when's Dave going to go to the next passage. We're just going to be using like one slide of service which is going to be the text I'm preaching from and you guys need to have a hard copy or your phone or whatever to follow along because we're going to start kicking it old school so that they can pay more attention during the sermon because we want everyone to be ministered to. Uh, So anyhow, the church went well for two millennia without slides will be fine now. All right, amen. All right, let's do it to it. So we're continuing our study of 1 John, obviously, the series called Simple Truths. Uh, And in this book, John's going over the core doctrines of our faith. Um, And it's always good for us to be reminded of the essentials of the faith because we are foolish and quick to forget even the most simple things about Christianity. Um, But for the last chapter or so that we've been in, chapter 4, a huge theme of it, uh, John has really hammered Uh, on the fact that Christians love other Christians. He has hammered this hard. We've been talking about this for almost two months now. Um, Now, I want to make something clear. As Christians, we love our neighbor, right? Regardless of who our neighbor is, Christian or or, or unbeliever, whatever. um, But there is to be a special love between the people of God. There's something special between brothers and sisters in the faith, right? That's what John's pushing towards, one of his major themes. Uh, But every time that John mentions... The same theme, again, we've, been talk- we've talked about love for the brethren or loving the brothers many times, but every time he does it, he goes a little bit deeper each time. All right, so he writes in circles, constantly going back over the same things, but then we go into deeper motivation, deeper application, deeper implications uh, of the text. Uh, but tonight we're going to continue uh, a little bit on love uh, for our fellow Christians, but then we're also going to see how John ties together love for fellow believers and obedience to God's commandments, right? You can't take them apart. Now, on the topic of the commandments of God, um, the, the moral law of God, what we use from the, from the Baptist confession, right? The commandments of God, the moral law of God uh, is absolutely indispensable in the life of the Christian, all right? This is going to be a, a big theme for us this evening. It's absolutely indispensable. Uh, there, there's actually a, a really foolish movement that's been around for probably a couple decades now, maybe longer, I don't know, called like Red Letter Christianity. Raise your hand. Have you ever heard of that? A couple people. All right. And you'll know it's foolish. All right? Red Letter Christianity says that the Gospels are, the, are, are more important than anything else in the Bible and that the, the red letters, right, the literal words out of Jesus Christ's mouth are more important than anything else in the whole Bible, and you really don't need any of the Old Testament, you really don't need any of the New Testament epistles, all you need are the words of Jesus. Um, And that's really dumb, because if you understand the inspiration of Scripture, and that Jesus is God, the whole book is Jesus' word, right? So again, people that that take that whole red letter approach, and we don't need the law, they really don't understand the nature of sacred Scripture. Um, But again, the law, the Old Testament law even, the moral law of God is indispensable, for the Christian, all right? But let me be clear from the get-go. Nobody has ever been saved or will ever be saved by obedience to the law of God, 
Your own works will not make you right with God. Your obedience to the law of God will not save you, will not set you right. By works of the law shall no man be justified in his sight, is what Paul says. So the law can't save you. Your obedience can't save you. All that it can do, or primarily what it's meant to do at first, is to show you what a sinner that you are and how much that you need a Savior. In the book of Galatians, Paul says the law is a schoolmaster for us um, until Christ would come, because it was always pointing to us as our teacher, pointing us to Christ. Um, but after the law has broken us and, and revealed to us our need for a Savior, and we have since come to Christ by faith, we then go back to the law. We then go back to the law to see how we ought to live, to see how we can please the God who has loved us and saved us by grace through faith in Christ. So my, my big point for this sermon before we get into the text is this. So this is your takeaway. Love for fellow Christians and obedience to God's commandments are inextricably linked together. But for the Christian, obedience to the law is no burden for us. It's a joy to us, and we keep the commandments of God with glad hearts. All right, so with that being said, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, as always, we thank you for your word given to us, faithfully handed down from one generation to the next. God, I pray that you would open our eyes that we might understand the text, but not just intellectually, but that the truth of your word would sink deep down into our hearts, that we would be a people who love your law, that we would be a people who, in loving you and, and keeping your commandments, would be a people that love one another. God, if there's been a spirit of lawlessness amongst our people, I pray that you would correct it uh, through this text this evening as your Holy Spirit applies it to our hearts. Uh, and as always, if there's any unbelievers among us, Lord, I pray that you would begin to draw them to your Son. Let them see their sin. Let them see the goodness uh, of who you are, their inability to keep the law, uh, but salvation that is in Christ alone, received by faith. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so John starts out in verse 1. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. All right, so I want to set something straight. Again, this is going to be a lot of review. Most of you guys already know this, but this is, I, I have to do this. Uh, many people have taken this phrase and phrases like it in the Bible and have stretched it to its breaking point and, and make it say something that John never intended. Right? These people will take this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. They'll take that and warp it and make it say, anyone who claims that Jesus is the Messiah knows God. Then anyone who makes the claim that that's what Christ means is Messiah, anyone who says that Jesus is the Messiah knows God is saved. That is completely untrue. That's completely untrue. There are many non-Christian groups that, that don't know God who will perish in their sins, who also claim Jesus is the Messiah. 
right? There's a few examples for you, examples that you're, that you're probably going to run into someday. Uh, Muslims, right? Muslims claim that Jesus is the, the Jewish Messiah, right? But they deny his divinity. They say God has no son. They don't believe in his death or his resurrection, right? So they, they claim Jesus is the Messiah, but they don't, they don't believe in his divinity or anything that, that would be essential to knowing who Jesus is. You look at the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Again, they would claim, they would tell you, well, we believe Jesus is the Christ, but again, they believe he's a creation by God. You look at the Mormons, they say, well, yes, we believe Jesus is the Christ, but they're polytheists, right? They believe in more than one God. That's my favorite part about Mormonism. If you're good enough, you can become a God of your own planet. Wild. And the missionaries will lie to you. They won't tell you that that's what they believe. <laughs> Maybe that's just a joke for me. It's just funny. If you ever there, come to your house, ask them, y'all believe in more than one God? No, no. You sure? Anyway. Uh, or the last group, and this one's this, this one's probably the most prominent around here, if, if we're just going to keep it real. Uh, oneness Pentecostals, right? People that, that they're, they're modalists. That means they, they deny the Trinity. They say that, yes, I believe Jesus is the Messiah, but I also believe that God put on the mask of Jesus at this one particular point in time, and they deny the eternality of the Son of God. They say Jesus hasn't always been. God took on the mask of Jesus at a certain point in time, and he swaps masks out like he's a schizophrenic or something. I don't know. Right, but I'm bringing these groups up because someday you're going to run into someone from these groups, and I don't want you to be confused whenever you read this text, because I remember my interactions with some Jehovah's Witnesses, I would look at this passage and say, well, they say that Jesus is the Christ. I, maybe they've been born again. Maybe they know God. I don't know. I don't want you to have to deal with that confusion that I did uh, years back. But John has a very specific Jesus in mind whenever he writes Jesus is the Christ. He has a very specific Jesus in mind. And just to recap, throughout this letter, John has told us that Jesus is the Son of God. He said that in chapter 4, right? And whenever John says Son of God, he means that he is divine, the second person of the Trinity, right? Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, also in chapter 4, he says he has come in the flesh, that he is truly God and also truly man. God made flesh, the incarnation of God. He said in chapter 4 that he is the Savior of the world. That he's our savior from wrath and sin. That we need a savior. And God provided that in Jesus. That he was the propitiation for sins. We read that in chapter 2 and chapter 4. That he is the satisfaction of the wrath of God. Uh, chapter 2 we saw that he's the righteous advocate. Right? That he intercedes for us whenever we sin. That he's always before the face of God as our advocate when we sin. And then if you look to the gospel of John, just chapter 1. Again, I can't hammer the divinity of Christ enough. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Right? So again, that Word is Jesus. He's divine. So whenever John says Jesus is the Christ, he knows that he's already taught those foundational things about Jesus. He's calling them all to mind whenever he says Jesus is the Christ. So he doesn't have to repeat himself over and over. So if someone ever comes to you, and you're talking to them about religion, uh, trying to evangelize them or trying to feel out where they're at, and they say that they believe Jesus is the Messiah, it is completely fair to ask in return, which Jesus are you talking about? Right? Which Jesus? And if it's not John's Jesus, if it's not the, the Jesus John describes, the divine second person of the Trinity, eternal Son of God, propitiation for sins, raised from the dead on the third day, if it's not that Jesus, then it's not the Jesus. It's not the Christ if it's not John's Christ. If you believe in a Christ other than the one John and the apostles preached, you are an idolater. You're worshiping an idol. You have a false God. You have a false Christ who cannot save because that Christ does not exist. And as you read in the Old Testament, especially in Psalm 135, we're told that those who worship idols will become just like them. 
that they're dead, they're dumb, they're, they're blind, they're deaf, they're worthless. And those who trust in an, an idol, and in our case, an idolatrous Christ, that person will perish. So a little side note on this. Let me encourage you uh, to, to, to do something in light of this. So you can keep your head straight uh, on, on which Jesus we're talking about. Always be in the scriptures daily. But let me encourage you to use the catechisms. Use the creeds, use the confessions. If you're a member here at this church, I have given you catechisms, creeds, and confessions. Use them, right? Use the 1689 uh, confession. Use the Westminster shorter or larger catechism, right, Nick? The Westminster, it's a good one. <laughs> well, he's a Presbyterian. I got I to gotta say what's up, right? Use the Westminster. It's a good catechism. Use the Baptist catechism. It's a better one. Um, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, the Westminster is way, way way better, to be totally honest. But yeah, like use the creeds, use the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the Council of Chalcedon. Use these things. Use these historical Christian documents. They're going to help you keep a clear head on the core doctrines of the faith. Because while those uh, historic documents aren't inspired, they are a distillation of the Bible. Right? They're a distillation of, of Christian truth, a summarization of the core doctrines of the faith. So use those and you won't ever have to deal with the confusion that I did. I wish someone would have introduced me to the confessions and creeds before I, or long ago, rather. I wish that would have been something told to me. But he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now, so John says that whoever believes in the true Christ has been born of God. And as always, whenever we talk about belief, believing always includes Repentance. Right? It always includes a turning from sin and trusting in the person and work of Jesus for your salvation. You can almost use the words in the New Testament, believe and repent. They're almost interchangeable because they go hand in hand so much. Right? So if someone has repented and believed in the true Jesus, John says that person has been born of God. And I've talked about this so many times in this, in this series because this is one of the major themes in, in all of John's writings. And that's the new birth. Right, being born again. So you'll remember, as I defined last week, the new birth is that supernatural act of God, the Holy Spirit, that causes us to see our sin, hate our sin, desire forgiveness from God, and then causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the gospel and gives us the gift of faith so that we can believe. Right, and it's also in that new birth that we receive a new nature. We're a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. We're a new we have a new nature that desires to believe in and follow Jesus. Right? That's the new birth. That's what he means whenever he says, you've been born of God. So again, whoever has believed in the biblical Christ, John says, has prior to that, prior to their believing, has received the new birth. Right? He says they, that person has been born of God, meaning it happened first. It's because of the new birth that a person believes and again, I, I harp on this because in our area, in Scioto County, people make um, making a decision for Christ synonymous with being born again. That's not the case, right? The new birth comes before that. The new birth is why the person believes. You could not repent and believe the gospel until God gave you the new birth, until God caused you to be born again. And let me lay this before you, Christian. That should bring you to your knees in humility before God. You did not have it in you to repent and believe the gospel. And yet God, by His grace, by grace you have been saved, made you alive in Christ that you might believe. All right, this is that theological formula if you're a nerd. Right? Regeneration precedes faith. 
right? Regeneration, the new birth, comes before you believe, though they happen simultaneously. But on paper, we can distinguish them. Regeneration comes before faith. So John is stressing to us in that phrase, what he's stressing is that if we believe, we have been acted upon by God himself. Right, so think about that. That's a special thing that has happened. That does not happen to everyone. If you have repented and believed the gospel, God has worked upon you first. God has caused us to be his children. He has chosen us. He has adopted us through his son, Jesus Christ. And he has created us into his children. And I would argue that the work of the new creation, giving us the new birth, is greater than the work of the physical creation. Right? He's created us into his children. And John's pushing to us that God has done this, created his children, created them, to literally every believer who has ever lived. That God has personally acted upon every individual believer. And in light of that, John says, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. That is to say, everyone who now calls God Father and has been made into his child now loves whoever else has been made a child of God. Right, so everyone who has repented and believed in the biblical Christ now loves everyone else who has done the same. I know I'm being very repetitive. I want you to see that. Children of God. Love children of God. God has worked upon every believer individually and created every individual believer into his child. He has chosen every individual believer to be his child and adopted every individual believer into his family through Christ. John is reminding us that the church, the church universal, the worldwide church, is a family. That's what he's pressing on us. It's a family. There is to be mutual love and unity in the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That one, that unity. All believers are one family of God, are all the children of God. And what John's keying up on is that family loves family. All right, we can see this in the natural world, right? There is a closeness between siblings. There's a closeness between siblings, at least ideally. Right? They share the same parents. They spend a lot of time together. They are bonded together in love. They are united in one family. And John is saying that since we have the same Heavenly Father, we must love one another. But too often this doesn't happen. Right? Christians often have disdain for other Christians. But what's interesting is even in the natural world, when siblings hate each other, even unbelievers find that to be unnatural and off-putting. How much more for us who are in the household of faith would it, should it seem off-putting whenever Christians have disdain for other Christians? But John says, whoever has believed in Christ is our sibling, is our brother or sister. And because of that, we owe them love. All right, so me and Steve talked a little bit on Wednesday. and I, I wanna, In light of that, I want to I make a pastoral note. Right? So this is, for, this is for the people here. Right? I write these sermons with you guys in mind. 
Right? John just said that we have an obligation to love all who believe in and follow the true biblical Christ. We have an obligation to that. We're going to see the Apostle Paul key up on that in a minute. But I fear sometimes that we have the capacity, we have all the ingredients necessary to become a really hateful church. I'm just keeping it real. We have the capacity to become a very hateful church. Now, before I go any further, you guys know that I hate bad theology. <laughs> you guys know that I hate bad doctrine. And you know that I hate church gimmicks to try to get people to come into the church by any means necessary. You know me, right? I'm, I'm king of that. I can't stand that kind of nonsense, so know that before I go on. But we have a lot of people at Rev that love to study the Bible. And we have a lot of people at Rev that really, truly have a zeal for truth and a zeal for sound doctrine. And I consistently thank God for that in my prayers, and I wish it were more common in more churches. But my concern is that we're not, we're not always studying so that we can see God more clearly. We're not always studying and have a zeal for the truth so that we can be more godly. Sometimes I think we have a zeal for our own tradition. Rather than I'm so excited about this truth, I can see God so much more clearly and this pushes me in my faith. This pushes me in my obedience. But rather we, we, we stand upon the Reformed tradition and again, amen, that's great. But we do it for the sake of tradition almost sometimes. Sometimes I think that we learn more so we can point out the errors, flaws, and faults of other churches and other people around us, and less so we would follow Christ more closely. I see that sometimes. I see it in myself. I see it in some people here too. So I entreat you in light of that, in light of this obligation that we have to love everyone who has repented and believed in the biblical Christ, be more charitable. Be more charitable in your thoughts and in your speech about other churches and about other believers. Try to assume the best of others until you are forced to not do so. Strive to be kind. Right? Don't be a tribalist. Right? It's something that I fight with a lot. Right? Where you say, like, this is like the Reformed Baptist tradition. If you're outside of it, mm, I don't really want to talk to you. I really don't want a whole lot to do. Or again, we might give a pass to, like, other Reformed tribes, but, like, we don't really want anything else to do with, like, any other evangelicals in America. Don't be a tribalist. Right? Study for the right reasons. Be slow to point out flaws. And don't, don't misunderstand me. Error does need corrected. Error does need corrected. People do need to be taught. And we may be rightly annoyed by some of the stuff that we see online or some of the stuff we see in other churches around here. But, let me lay this out for you. There are true believers that follow Christ in some of those foolish churches. There are. I know them. You know some of them if you're going to be real. There are people who have repented and believed in the biblical Christ who follow Him daily. Again, they might need correction, they might need instruction, but we must love them. We must be charitable to them because everyone who loves the Father loves everyone who has been born of Him. This is what John says. So we must love our fellow brothers and sisters in the faith. But John goes on to tell us how. Verse 2. By this, we know that we love the children of God. That by this is pointing forward. When we love God and obey His commandments... 
All right, so John is showing us here how love for others and obedience to God are linked up together and they're inseparable, right? And this is because love for God, right, that we have because of the mercy he's shown us in the Lord Jesus, love for God leads us into obedience to him, obedience to his law. And part of God's law is that we love one another. So in a roundabout way, to obey God and love God is to love others. You cannot be walking in obedience to God and not loving other people because God commands it, right? If you do the first, if you love God, the second follows. If you love God, you will, of necessity, love your neighbor. Right? Like John Calvin said, the love of God is no idle thing, right? We will love others. It will push us towards obedience to God. So basically what John is saying is that if you want to see how you should love one another, look to the law. Look to the law. And remember, the New Testament's not completed at this point, so whenever he's talking about the commandments of God, he, a lot of the time, and that and John being a Jew, he has a, a bunch of the Old Testament in mind whenever he talks about the commandments of God. And the Lord Jesus showed us this same thing, that love and obedience are linked together in the great commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The great commandment, love God and love your neighbor. Don't ever forget this. Whenever Jesus said that, Love the Lord your God, he's quoting De- Deuteronomy 6.5. <laughs> and whenever he says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's quoting Leviticus 19.18. Don't ever forget that. He's quoting the Old Testament law whenever he says that. So again, the law and love are linked together. And Jesus says that they're of equal strength, loving God and loving your neighbor. The first leads to the second. But Paul tells us the same thing in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. He says, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, in that passage that we just read out of Romans, Paul does something astounding here. He says that we need to look at the law, and here he references the Ten Commandments, right? All those things, you shall not murder, uh, or you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. He's referencing the Ten Commandments here. He says we need to look to the law if we want to see how to practically love others. Because if Jesus just said, yeah, love your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself, you may be sitting here going, well, that sounds kind of ethereal, and I'm not exactly sure how to do that. Look to the law. Right now, for John and Paul talking about, and and Christ talking about God's law and love for others, that brings up an an important subject for us. And I mentioned it in the introduction. That's the use of the law in the life of the Christian. And as I said, this is something that goes ignored a lot today. Um, There's a lot of antinomianism at work, right? Against the law, lawless living, and people saying that they're Christians. Many people will say, I'm under grace and not law. Therefore, the law has no place in my life. It cannot save, and it has nothing to do with me. And people who say that are kind of right, right? They're they're partially right, right? Give credit where credit's due. The law cannot save. They absolutely got that right, and we are under grace. We're not under law as a system of salvation anymore. We are under grace through Christ and the new covenant, but the law is still crucial to the Christian even post-conversion. 
John Calvin wrote of the three uses of the law, and I find them to be very helpful and very biblical. And the first use of the law, Calvin argued, was to show us that we're sinners, to show us that we're sinners, that we deserve the wrath of God, that we're lawbreakers, and those who break God's law deserve to die, deserve to suffer the wrath of God in, in a literal hell, and that we need a Savior in Jesus. That's the first use of the law. All right, and then the second use, I'm not going to give that one to you. Look it up when you get home, right? Study on your own. We're not going to talk about the second use of the law. But the third use of the law is to show the Christian how to live, right? And Calvin said this is the highest use of the law. The first use of the law was schoolmaster showing us we need Christ. Third use is the highest. How should a Christian live? It's what the law tells us then. The law tells us what pleases the God that we now love who has saved us through faith in Christ. Right? And it pleases God when we love each other. And his moral law, summarized in the Ten Commandments, shows us how to love one another. So remember, Paul said the commandments are summed up by love your neighbor as yourself. We need instruction on what that really means, so we go to the law. The easiest way for us to go to the moral law of God is to look at the Ten Commandments. Right? Now the Ten Commandments, just real quick, they're divided into two sections, two tables of the law. The first table is the first four commandments, and those are vertical, those are Godward. And then the last six commandments, commandments five through ten, are the second table of the law, and they deal with our horizontal relationships, how we deal with other people. Now, in order to love one another, we need to focus on the second table, obviously. But if you're like me, if you're thinking about the Ten Commandments, and by the way, if you don't have all the Ten Commandments memorized, do that. Come on, man. Like, Don't let your kids show you up. Real talk. You ever considered this? There would be like 15-year-olds that had like the entire catechisms memorized back in the day, and like half of us don't know the Ten Commandments in order. I'll let the Holy Spirit convict you on that. Um, <laughs> right? But we think about the Ten Commandments. Get those in your head. Think about those. And whenever we think of the Ten Commandments, at least I thought this at first this, this past week, uh, whenever I was just first reading through the text and just kind of getting my preliminary thoughts together, I was like, that's love? Like the Ten Commandments are love for other people? Like, don't murder, don't, don't sleep with someone else's wife, don't steal from people, don't lie. That's love. Like, that seems like literally the bare minimum you can do. Like, hey, chief, I'm not going to kill you or sleep with your wife, right? Like, congratulations, <laughs> right? Like, that seems like the bare minimum that a person can do for someone else. <laughs> Sorry. But if you think that, if you look at the Ten Commandments and think, that seems like literally the least that I could do for my fellow a uh, human being, especially for my fellow brother or sister in the faith, if you think that, I would argue that you're not looking at the Ten Commandments deeply enough. You have a very superficial view of the law. Because every commandment that God gives is double-sided. Right? It's got two sides to every command. Right? And this is something that I found. I seriously use, use the catechisms for this stuff. It's seriously been helpful. Every commandment's two-sided. If God says, don't do this, then of necessity, we must do the opposite. And if God says, abstain from this, then we must, or if he says, do this, then we must abstain from the opposite. So if he says, don't, then we do the opposite. If he says, do, then we don't do the opposite. It's always double-sided. And this adds many layers to the commandments. And again, if I could put, just write this down if you're a note-taker. The Westminster Larger Catechism. Huge detailed, detailed stuff on the commandments of God. It's incredibly helpful. 
But again, if we, if we see the many layers of the commandments, it's no longer just bare bones. It's no longer just the least that you can do. Right? So I'll give you two examples, and then we'll move on. Just real quick. And there, these are a couple of examples from Romans 13 that Paul used about the law. He says, you shall not commit murder. Right? The sixth commandment. Meaning you must not take life unlawfully. Right? It's not thou shalt not kill. Right? That wasn't the best translation ever from the King James. Right? You shall not murder. Right? Not all killing is murder. All murder is killing, though. But anyway, not all killing is murder. You must not take life unlawfully. Now, according to Jesus, this also entails that we are not to hate others because hatred is the root of murder. Right? So the commandment is telling us, do not hate people. Do not unlawfully take their life. So conversely, right, he says, don't do this. So then we must, on the other hand, seek the good of other people. We must seek to protect life, right? We must seek to see others flourish in life, fight to see the people around us thrive and do well. We must then show compassion to other people. We must forgive our enemies, right? All that's tied up with the sixth commandment, don't kill. All that's tied up with that if we look at, okay, not just the negative, but what am I positively commanded to do uh, by necessity, Right, or then another one, a second example, my last one, you shall not covet, which means you must not inordinately desire what other people have. You must not grieve when others have more or better than you. Now, the opposite of this would be you must be content. If you're not going to covet, you must be content with what God has given you. And also that you would have a kind heart towards your neighbor. Right? You can't have a kind heart towards your neighbor if you covet everything that they have. Right? That you would rejoice whenever you see someone else doing well. That you would not be envious of others. That you would desire to see them do even better. Right? So again, in the commandment, do not covet, all of that is also implied. So you can see, again, and I won't, I won't belabor it, you can see that if we deeply kept the second table of the law, if we really looked at, okay, what, what are the positive and negative commandments from just these last six commandments in, in, the, in, in the law, if we, could, if we could keep those perfectly, keep them deeply, we would love one another perfectly. We would truly be loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. So the law of God certainly then has a very prominent place in the life of the Christian. So I encourage you, look to it daily and keep it. Strive to keep the law. Love God and love others. That's what you will do whenever you keep the law. But John also says this, that when we obey God, or that, that we obey God when we love God. He says when we love Him and keep His commandments. And when we love God, we necessarily love others. And I want to make a quick point on that. If loving God results in us loving others, if loving God results in us being obedient to his commands to do good for others, that means this. When you're not charitable and when you're not kind, when you're not gracious, when you're not doing good for others, when you're not rejoicing with them, when they do well, all of those things, it's not because you don't love your neighbor enough. It's not because you don't love your fellow Christian enough. Really, it's because you don't love God in that moment. Because the love of God is obedience to his commandments. And he commands us to do these things. So whenever we don't walk in love for one another, it's because we don't really love God in that moment. So just briefly, surely no matter how 
frustrating our fellow Christians can be. We love the God who saved us enough to be faithful to Him. Even when we're not particularly fond of our brother or sister in that moment. Surely we love God enough to, to push to be faithful to Him in spite of the other person. Because we love Him. Verse 3, pushing on through this text. I have no idea what I just did in my notes. Give me one second. Oh, that's awful. We all knew this was going to happen someday. All right, where's verse 3? I got to use notes. I'm not as good as those preachers. They get up here and they just fluke. I don't know what they're doing. Uh, Verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. All right, so we've just talked a lot about the law of God. We've talked a lot about commandment keeping. And John says his commandments are not burdensome. And this is the sticking point to me. This was what leapt off the page to me. His commandments are not burdensome. I've been excited to get to this part of the sermon. John has told us that love for God is obedience to God's law, and obedience results in love for the brothers. So again, his focus is on law keeping, but if you're like me, and you consider law obedience, you get pretty anxious, right? It's like, I'm not the best at this sometimes, right? Most of the time. Because it's hard. It's hard to keep the law. But then John says that beautiful little sentence, and his commandments are not burdensome. Let this be an encouragement to you. His commandments are not burdensome is what John says. Now the commandments are demanding and they're difficult, no doubt. But for the Christian, they are not a heavy burden on our lives. Right? So let me give you five quick reasons why the law of God is not a burden on the person who has trusted Christ. And please, I... Please try to look at the law differently, because most of us, I hear our conversations, we're like, yeah, God said I can't do that, so we're kind of begrudging almost to it. Let me show you why the law of God is not a burden on us. The first is this, we have been born again. Verse 1, there's a reason why I I belabored that a bit. We've been born again, and in that new birth, we've been given new desires, and we now have a desire. If you've been born again, you have a desire to obey God. If you have no in-heart in desire to obey God, you should probably check yourself because you're just a religious person and you've not received the new birth because that's what comes with the new birth. Sometimes you desire to obey more, sometimes you desire to obey less, but the desire nevertheless is always there. We desire to obey God. We now hate the sin and the disobedience and the lawlessness that we once lived in that separated us from God and made the death of Christ necessary for our salvation. We hate lawlessness now. God has put in us a new heart, like Ezekiel talked about, that that seeks to do what pleases him. We still sin, no doubt, but our truest desire, like Paul talks about in Romans 7, our truest desire is to keep the law of God. And where desire is, there is no burden. You always do what you want to do. You always do your highest desire. We obey gladly. We obey joyfully. Though it is difficult sometimes, but that is our greatest desire. It's to obey the law. And there's no burden where there is desire. Two, as Christians... We know, this was huge for me, like this was a game changer for me after being a Christian for a while. The law of God, we know this, it's not arbitrary. 
The law of God is not arbitrary. God doesn't just give commands because he feels like it. He didn't just give the commands because, eh, I got nothing else better to do. And, mm, right? He has good reason for every commandment he has ever given his people. Right? God has proven to us that he is always working for our good. He's proven that at the cross. He's proven his great love for us. He's proven his nature. Again, we talked about a couple weeks ago, God is love. And the law of God is an extension of the nature of God. It's an extension of who he is. It's his character revealed in the letter. Right? So these, these laws that he's given are loving. And he knows that we will thrive. We will live better lives in the law. That's why he gave them. And we were created by him to obey him. We were created by him to live as his law dictates. He knows that's what's going to be best for us. Furthermore, just a, a bit of an anecdote, I suppose. Imagine a world where people obeyed only the second table of the law. I'm not saying that they're all Christians, but imagine a world where people kept the second table of the law. Commandments 5 through 10. It would be a near utopia if people kept the second table of the law. The law is good. The law is not arbitrary. Three, the ability to obey God has been given to us in the new birth. Not only the desire, but the ability. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Meaning, show it. Work it out of you. Right? Show your salvation. For it is God who works in you, both to will, the desire, and to work for his good pleasure. Right? So again, this is no burden for us because it is God the Holy Spirit working within us. The law is not a burden to those who have been empowered by God for obedience. God gives us aid in obeying. We formerly could not keep his law, and now because of his spirit living in us, giving us not only the, the desire, but the ability to carry out what God has commanded, this is no burden. We can actually do this. You're not going to do it perfectly, but you can consistently do this. Four, this is big. We are not trying to obey the law in order to save ourselves. Right? We have come to Jesus Christ for salvation. We know that the law is a burden to those who try to earn their salvation. Especially if you were raised in like a legalist tradition growing up, you know what a burden the law is whenever you're trying to obey it to save yourself. But we have heard the word of Christ that is better than the law. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 and 30, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That's what Jesus says. And he knows that whenever we come to him, we're also going to be going back to the law after we come to him for salvation. But nevertheless, Jesus says, though I am going to send you back to the law to show that you love me. Because he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Though I'm going to take you back to the commandments, my burden is nevertheless light. My yoke is easy. And he can say that because we know that our obedience is not out of self-preservation or trying to save ourselves. Rather, our obedience is because Jesus has already saved us. We have hearts of gratitude, which then leads us into the fifth one. Our attempt to obey God, our attempt to keep the law of God is no burden because it is out of love for God. And there is no burden in love. There is no burden in love. 
Right? We want to obey. We want to show our gratitude. We desire to glorify God daily in our obedience. Right? I read an analogy uh, in one of my commentaries. This guy was saying that there was a, an older, to, to, to illustrate this point, uh, there was an older brother who had a, a younger brother that was crippled. Uh, and the older brother would put his younger brother on his back and walk to school every day. Carry the kid to school every day, carry him back home from school. And one day, one of the older brother's classmates said to him, man, like that is a, you carry him every day? Yeah, every day. I carry him every single day. What a burden that that must be. And he said, he is no burden, he is my brother. Right? That is how we obey God. It's no burden because we love him. Just like the boy in that illustration loves his younger brother and says, it's no burden for me to carry him. Same for us whenever it comes to obedience. God has saved us by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And we love him for that now. We owed our love to him before. But how much more now that we know we've been saved through Christ and there's no wrath for, for us to bear ever. His commandments can be no burden for us. We love him with such a joyful love for saving us. But to push that illustration a bit further, we could say that the law is a, is, is a bit, so again, I'm just ripping this guy off that I read that illustration from. The law is like a backpack that we carry around, given to us by God, and it's beautiful for us, beautiful to us. We cherish this thing. And it does make things more difficult for us sometimes, though. Right? It causes us to take different paths because with this bag on, we can't fit in certain places. But we love it nevertheless. There are certain places we can't go. There are certain places we won't fit because of this large bag on our back, but we love it. And people around us say, look how heavy it is. Look at all the things you can't do with it on. Look at the places that it forces you to go. It's too heavy. You should drop it. But the Christian, we don't find it that heavy. It's full of good, useful things. And we know that the one who gave it to us loves us. We cherish this bag, but let me tell you this. If we were to take it off and hand it to an unconverted person, it would crush them. Again, if you were to take the law off your back and give it to an unbeliever, it would crush them. They would hate it. They would want rid of it. It would be too heavy for them. And that's because the unconverted person does not love the lawgiver. So why would they love his law? The person who has not received the new birth is an enemy of God. Paul says in Romans 8 that the people who, who, people who have not repented and believed in Christ are the enemies of God and they are hostile towards him. They will not obey him. Indeed, they cannot. But not us. We gladly carry the law daily. So how do you view the law? With joy or as a burden? Because I challenge you to think on these things. I think too often we have a low view of the law because we haven't much considered the loving God who has given it to us. We haven't much considered the goodness of the law itself. We've forgotten that aid that God promises to us in keeping it. And we forget that when we fail to keep it, Christ has already kept it for us. And if you forget those things, the law will be a burden to you. I challenge you to think about the law differently. But for application, moving to the end now, three things, and there's points I've already made, and I won't belabor them, just to recap. 
The first is this. Verse 1 told us that everyone in the family of God loves their fellow Christians. We are one big family with God as our Father. So I entreat you, love your family. Love your family. Be kind to believers, even those outside of our tradition. Be charitable to those you disagree with on secondary issues. If it's a primary issue of the faith, put your boxing gloves on. Go to town. I don't care. If it's a secondary issue, be charitable. Be kind. Pray for and do good for your family. Second, look at the law of God deeply. Go home. Look at the Ten Commandments. Use the catechism. Sit down. Sit and ponder on, okay, well, what what negatively and positively is God saying in these commandments? And see if you really love the people of God. Weigh yourself against the law of God and repent where you need to. Make amends where you should. But then please look to Christ who kept the law in your place. That's, That's how the law doesn't crush you. And push on in following Him. And lastly, Pray that God would help you to see the law properly. That that it would be more and more of a delight for you. That God would give you aid as you strive to show your love for God by your obedience. And remember that Christ's burden is light. He has set us free from the law as a means for salvation. And now we can push to obey out of a heart of love and thanksgiving toward the God who saved us. We'll end by reading our passage one more time. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Let's pray. Father, I thank You. Thank you for your law. Thank you for the love that, you, that, you, that you've loved us with in Christ. Grace upon grace came through Christ, but Lord, help us to look at the law and see that it is indeed still a grace to us. Lord, please make us into people who can say along with the psalmist in Psalm 119 that we love your law and we meditate on your law and we delight in your law and we long to run in the ways of your law. Put that in us, Lord. Help us to see that the law is no burden to us. Give us hearts full of thankfulness and gratitude for the work that Christ has done for us, Lord, because we know that gratitude is the great motivator. Love for you is the great motivator for our obedience. Lord, forgive us for our lack of love for our brothers, for our lack of love for your law, our lack of love for you. But God, we do thank you so much that Christ has been the satisfaction of your wrath for our disobedience. And that likewise, he has kept the law in our place and is our righteousness. And to him we look and to him alone. In his name, amen.